This is the Equal Yoke Podcast. Hosted by husband and wife, Zach and Morgan Hill, this show exists to promote family theology within the context of an equally yoked marriage that plows ahead for the gospel and great commission. We've got work to do, so now let's plow ahead. Welcome to the Equal Yoke Podcast, Episode 5. I really honestly can't believe we're already on Episode 5. Yeah, we've been running through these. We've been running through. I can see why to our regular podcasters, those that make their living on podcasting, how they say, wow, I can't believe we're on Episode 100, 500, 5,000, we know whatever it is. This has been, it's been quick. Yeah, I feel like we just started. We, well, it, Kind of, we really kind of did. A few weeks ago, yeah. we kind of did. But but when you we have the life that we do, a couple of weeks feels like a, a time warp. Where a couple of weeks is a couple years feels like sometimes. Or two hours at the same time. Yeah, a thousand years is but a day in the <laughs> a day is but a thousand years in the Hill household. Yes. So we have got a, a lot of good feedback from the episode that we did with Josh Nemi with uh, expository parenting and discipleship in the home. That's been very insightful. We had a fun time with him. Yeah, we definitely did. I've had a lot of people reach out to me when I kind of let the day before it got released. I was like, okay, we're doing an interview on discipleship in the home. Who do you all think we're going to have? And I just kind of let people guess. Somebody said Vody, and I was like, Man, one day, We're not one day, cool. please. <laughs> but no, we we are so blessed that we got to have Josh on here. And like we mentioned in that episode, his book and his ministry has also been a blessing to our family. Yeah, absolutely. And, and he's a good brother. And again, uh, we pray that you can grab that book. Uh, hey, you know what? I'll just go and plug it. Go grab the book off Amazon and help the dude out a little bit right before Christmas, right? Papa yeah. needs a new pair of shoes, I guess. Yeah. So he's self-published. You know, he, he gets that. So I and get these that. would be really good Christmas gifts. Great Christmas gifts. Be intentional with your Christmas gifts. Absolutely. That is what I've tried to do since the Lord has opened my eyes to the deception that I was in, is just be really intentional with giving gospel-centered gifts. Absolutely. They well, may that, they may think they don't need it, but they do. That's a That sounds like a topic that we can talk about down the road. That's... Some pretty, that, that sounds like a Christmas. rabbit hole right there. But anyway, <laughs> we had Josh Nemi on and we talked about discipleship in the home. And that was a very broad overview that could in and of itself be its own podcast. But as we began to think about the implications of discipleship in the home, uh, Maury and I just kind of looked at that and said, you know, discipleship in the home looks a whole lot um, different now than it did uh, when we first got married, um, the Lord has sanctified us and brought us through uh, just a huge journey, I feel like, from wilderness to promised land in many aspects. But one thing that we decided, hey, you know what we need to do to, as a follow-up episode to that would be this. Here's your title. Are you ready? It's going to be long. Because I'm a Puritan? Yes. So you want the Puritan paperbacks <laughs> Shortened version or the actual Puritan? The actual okay, one. no, I'm just kidding. I don't. I don't have like an, <laughs> an uh, like a Obadiah Sedwick huge long title. But this is it, the deep dive. We're going to do a deep dive crash course on better Bible study. That's what discipleship in the home and our conversation with Josh was all about. Was was what centered yeah. around the Word. 
exactly. centered around the word. And so better Bible study is going to produce better discipleship in the home, whether that be um, in a, kind of in a tongue-in-cheek way, the Lord discipling you personally through his word, you one-on-one, discipleship between couples, and then discipleship in the family at large, whether that be parents to children, uh, parents or, or uh, couples and those individuals with siblings, um, et cetera, right? Sound good? Yeah, and there's definitely, like, you can't deny that there there has to be a direct link between how you personally study the Bible and then how you therein are going to disciple others. Right, and so the the whole premise of this, let's let's if we're going to talk about better Bible study, let's ground it with some scripture real quick. So, Acts 17, the Bereans, Paul and crew have just got run out of Thessalonica, beaten and bloody, and they get to Berea, and what happens? Do you don't remember? Well, I've been expositing Paul Acts at preaches. church. No, that they they Paul and crew land there in Berea, and it was a breath of fresh air because the Bereans. They examined everything that he said. They examined everything that Paul said, not by the cultural standard, not by a co- a political commentary. They didn't go to uh, the the town curator and say, "Hey, this Jewish guy over here is saying this." No, they they themselves examined the scriptures daily to see if the things that Paul taught were so. Which means they actually had access to some form of the scriptures there, which would have been the Old Testament. Probably not in entirety, but portions of it, because they were a Gentile outlying community. Nevertheless, what did they do? They eagerly examined the scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was so. And and so before we jump, jump into this deep dive Morgan, I, we have talked about this multiple times um, in our late night, or not really late night. We're not night hours. We're, we're <laughs> early birds. Yeah, the, our, our early morning, which is probably late night for some people, conversations about how the Lord has so graciously changed how we approach the scriptures. So, why don't you take just a moment to explain how you used to approach reading and studying scripture? Let's see. I can probably name quite a few different techniques that I would never recommend to anyone now. I honestly did play Bible roulette quite a bit. Just opened up the page to what, well, not whatever. If it if it seemed to fall more Old Testament, I probably if it wasn't a Psalm or a Proverb, I probably jumped it to the New Testament because I didn't see that as relevant, obviously. I would open it up. I was very much an eisegetical reader, so I would read myself into the text. So for you people who may not know those terms of eisegesis and exegesis, so eisegesis means that I would look and read something into the text that's not there most of the time myself. So, Which is what has been termed narcissist. Yes, right? by and, Chris Roseboro. And right? do you know who the best narcissist is? I do, and we talk about him too much now. I'm not going to give him any more copyright <laughs> checks, so I won't even say his name. Anyway, so that would be like taking Jeremiah 29, 11 
and thinking that it was it was written exactly just for, for Morgan. For I know the plans I have for you. Says the Lord to Morgan. Like that that's how I would read it. To prosper me and not for harm and all these things. And then I would if you notice, they never go past like verse eleven and twelve. And it's also well, we'll get on to this in a minute, <laughs> but it's also in the twenty ninth chapter, the eleventh verse. Yeah. Just out of context, what's going on? What else is going on there? So So that was a big thing of just looking for myself in there. And honestly, my Bible reading was led by um, really looking at worship songs, really poorly, not poorly written. They're actually really musically written well, but theologically very poor. And like, oh, they said that they took this verse to make this song, then I'm just going to read that over and over and over and over again, like Zephaniah 3.17, that the Lord sings over you with a song and stuff like that. So I did not read the Bible as the seamless book that it is, um, all pointing to Christ Jesus. But I was sincere in what I was doing. And so I think what we need to point out from the beginning is even if you aren't studying the Bible correctly you can be sincere in doing it incorrectly but you can be sincerely wrong sure and and before we get any further we just want to clarify this is not some like gnostic if you don't study the bible this way then you're you're not a christian and you're not you know you're doing it wrong that's yeah, not no, but like, what do, we're saying but don't do what i was doing yeah don't, don't obviously please don't play there are definitely roulette. lots of wrong yeah ways like, to do we've it we've all i think we've all done that where we just flip it open and we keep playing like two and three flip opens and it finally lands on something. Uh, and we're like, Oh yeah, that's exactly what I need to hear. And we just make it the say, Lord had we, a word for yeah, me today. Yeah, we make it say what we want to want it to say. Yeah. And so please hear us say this, that you can r- simply read the Bible, maybe not even uh, understand clearly what it is trying to say, whether it be something that's apocalyptic or something that has to do with uh, the the poetic nature of the Psalms or anything like that, and you kind of be a little bit lost. But knowing knowing in your heart with conviction that it is the Word of God, it will do work on you. So, I, I guess, guess what I was trying to say is like I was very zealous, sure, in the Word. But my zeal was misplaced, therefore, like, my sincerity meant nothing. Right. But in the long the long run, looking back, like, I would rather have someone that is zealous to run to the Word. Yeah. Even if it is with... Um, uh, Poor intent yeah, and stuff. May, or maybe with conclusions that aren't necessarily super solid. Yeah. Um, than someone that is cold that thinks... That they don't, don't need I it. I don't need that. I already know enough. Um, give me the zealous person... Uh, than the frozen chosen yeah. uh, any day of the week. Uh, m- mine's very similar as well. Um, you know, I was and still am a musician, not as good as I used to be by any means. I don't have time to be, but I, I was, I'm a drummer and I grew up playing drums and I grew up playing, um, you know, Chris, it, it's not a thing really, but metal, right? So harder stuff, m- more intricate, more technical music, progressive and, and, and all those things. And so um, I, I played the roulette game a lot too, but mine was, I was trying to find things that seemed like super 
not necessarily dark by any means, but just the poetic nature. I, I landed a lot in the Psalms. My favorite Psalm growing up, I had no idea because this shows the type of church that I was taken to, and that's not to to chide my mom or anything at all. Um, she's even said like, I had no idea until, you know, the Lord called you to ministry and we started kind of fleshing these things out as a family. But my favorite Psalm growing up was Psalm 22. I had no idea that that had any, like that that was even a messianic Psalm. I had no idea that Jesus quoted that. I had no idea. I just would read it and go, man, this is like kind of, that sounded cool. This is kind of angsty, (laughs) right? Like this guy saying like he can see all of his bones and that he's, you know, feels forsaken and, and all these things. And I, I would read that a lot. And do you read Ezekiel a lot? No, I, I, didn't. I read that one a lot. I didn't the read Ezekiel. Bones. Um, I, I knew that, that passage. Um, but I was yeah, the only part of Ezekiel. I read. Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, spent a lot of time in the Davidic Psalms. You know, once you get past book two, um, I was like, eh, I don't really know what's going on here. And then also, um, had a affinity for Ecclesiastes of all books uh, because it's just the poetic nature of things. And so I really enjoyed reading uh, the Koaleths, whatever you think that may be, whether that's Solomon's repentance letter, whether you think that it's a amalgamation of whatever. We can get on that topic some other time. And then John. I mean, everybody just, I feel like everyone loves the book of John, and rightly so, because you know why? It has some poetic nature to it yeah. as well, especially in the prologue. And so mine was very much the same. It was selective. I had the Tom or Thomas Jefferson Bible, right? It it was basically... Just mark it out. It was like, I've got Psalms and Ecclesiastes and the book of John, and that's all that's I all know. That's all I need. <laughs> that's all I know. And so I, honestly, that's not the... That's not an anomaly. That's actually quite the norm in, in modern evangelicalism, isn't it? Yeah, it definitely is. I think we see that more and more too. Well, I think we've even seen the rise of taking scripture out of context in these past couple of years and, you know, making America Israel and the prosperity that must come upon us and all of that stuff. I think we've seen that even more so that like, okay, this is the common way that people read their Bibles. Yeah. And, and, you know, this is actually, this has been alluded to by Josh last week when we talked to him, but this was one of the risks that the reformers took in saying that the Bible needs to be in the hands of the common folk in their common language. This was a risk that they took of, um, and they were cognizant of it, of saying, we, we may come up with some, people may come up with some wonky interpretations, uh, a kind of a, an odd hermeneutic. But I'll say this, some of the goofy stuff that we see today, while it undoubtedly is, is wrong in many aspects, it, it ain't as wonky as some of the papal decrees that came yeah, out no, of some of the, of the allegorical interpretations of, you know, so-and-so being the sun and you being the moon. And so that's why you got to buy those indulgences. We got to build that St. Peter's Basilica, son. All right, so this is what I kind of want to, the, the aha moment here, and, and we've kind of talked about this before we started the show, and it's this. As your view of Scripture changes, so do your study habits of Scripture. you agree with that statement? Yeah, absolutely. Because I would say that you, knowing your story, um, and mine 
would be similar. You, as a teenager growing up with a, a false, a false profession, all these things, you would have just simply viewed the the Bible as what somewhat inspired, kind of maybe laced with man's opinion. It wasn't really the word of God. I don't know if I would have made that statement, but I lived as if I would have made that statement. Right, like you you were like like, I wouldn't have mm -hmm. straight out said like this may or may not be the word of like I would have affirmed that it was the word of God, but I would not have affirmed its authority, and I would not have affirmed um, like the the difficult passages that you found. You would have all you would have jumped immediately to what that well that was cultural. Yes, that and that's still the the predominant. um, Yeah, like. Even though I wouldn't have made that profession (laughs) of this isn't God's word, I still looked at it as if it wasn't really. Yeah. Like, well, that's And please don't, don't get me wrong. There are aspects and we're going to talk about that in just a minute of of scripture of being cognizant of the cultural aspect of what's going on. Yeah, for sure. But but going like. When you do that every other breath though, like then what was the point of God putting it in there? You know, it's cultural. Okay. All right. Well. What wasn't cultural? Well, we're going to get to that. Don't jump ahead. You read the notes. Sorry. You're banned from the show. I'm just kidding. (laughs) So as as our view of Scripture changes, so do our study habits of Scripture. Again, the, the best place to start with studying Scripture is what? To simply read it. Start at Genesis. Read all the way to Revelation, or start just pick a pick a book. You've got sixty six options now. I wouldn't start with like Second Kings because you or know Revelation. You need yeah right. <laughs> you need some context there, but you know if you you go to the New Testament, pick a gospel. Yeah, John um, is really a John good place is a great to start. One. But but pick any of them. Pick Mar- Mark is honestly in some ways better because it's like all these little teaser trailers, yeah, little snapshots little of what's going on. Like this is what happened. This is what happened. This is what happened. Um. Pick a a New Testament epistle. Pick a Pauline epistle. Right? If you go to the Old Testament, start with the Pentateuch, really, because it's one book. You don't yeah. you don't just plop down in the middle of Leviticus. You start with Genesis and go through Deuteronomy. And you can even make the case of of uh maybe even a, a hexatuchal narrative with all the way through Joshua, with Joshua kind of being like the sequel, right? This yeah. is kind of like this is what everything kind of built around. Um, you can start with those Just start it and read it and, and then jot down questions that you have. And then you can use these, um, these principles that we're going to lay out here maybe to, to go with that. Before we get into that, I want to clear up a couple misconceptions concerning scripture, um, and the study of scripture, but just scripture in general. And then one misconception about Bible study. So first, uh, misconceptions concerning scripture uh, itself, and it's, this is the number one. And you know, I can already see you smiling because we, like, I know individuals who who probably are naive and think this. <laughs> Misconception number one is this: the Bible was not dropped out of the sky, and the Bible that was not dropped out of the sky was not the sixteen eleven authorized version of the King James translation. Because if it was good enough for Paul, it's good enough for me. The fact that there's people who actually say that right now <laughs> baffles me, but that, it doesn't at the same if time. if the King James Version was good enough for Paul, it's good enough for me. If you are confused by that statement... That's a good thing. 
I'm glad you've never heard somebody you say that. But if but on the flip side, if you're confused by that statement, just email us. I don't want to just make fun and be sarcastic just for sarcasm's sake. Paul lived before 1611, so he couldn't have had that. There we go. The Bible was not dropped out of the sky. God sovereignly chose real people, real cultures, real space-time history, real events, real languages, real geopolitical tensions, all of these things. It wasn't just dropped out of the sky and, and, you know, it was like, well, this is kind of what happened. And it also wasn't dropped out of the sky in the sense of like God chose to write the Pentateuch through Moses or the Chronicler, whoever he was. And like they came under this like oracle of Delphi trance with their eyes all rolled back in their head and like doing this automatic writing, <clears throat> Jesus calling. But, you know, all this stuff, right? Like that's not what happened. I'm not gonna lie, like that's honestly how I saw it. As if as like, okay, something just came over these people and they like didn't even know what they were doing. Right. And that's that is honestly a, a majority view is And I think uh, truly like I think the reason why is because if you go the f- on what it truly is is okay, God inspired these men then what's easily leaked in there with people's defense of that? Mm-hmm. Well, well, then man wrote the Bible, and it has man's opinions, and man is fallible. I've actually had somebody yeah. tell me that. It's like, no, the Bible can't be inerrant because it was written by men. And so you have this like, okay, it wasn't just dropped out of nowhere, and there wasn't, they weren't under this spell of the Holy Spirit and had no idea what they were doing, but... God was sovereign over using the people he needed to use and their personalities mm-hmm. and still having the Holy Spirit divinely inspire these men to write down what needed to be penned. And so that's, I think that's something that you go, you can go from one extreme, but then you can go to the other two. Right. You know, Peter talks about that men were carried along by the spirit to pen what was penned, carried along that's using the same kind of um, mental imagery as Jesus in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus talking about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit being likened to what? The Ruach, the wind. Mm -hmm. And so carried along, the wind does not come upon a ship and and, uh, like possess it in the sense of like the wood in the ship is uh, is now the same makeup of the wind. No, the the wind yeah. simply catches the sh- the sail and, and pushes it where it, it, needs, it, to where it needs to go, and the ship uh, bounces. the The rudder is turned. Um, it has these creaks and all these personality quirks about it, but it it gets where it needs to go. And so that's what. Here's your big seminary word of the day: verbal plenary inspiration. That the Holy Spirit carried men along in real space time history with their real personalities did not override them, but sovereignly used them, and yet sovereignly brought about the, the, the words of Scripture that God um, desired to be His revelation, the, His self-revelation. That's why the Scriptures are so accessible, because we see personalities like Paul um, 
please don't read 2 Corinthians like this big ethereal Paul being like, um, I'm the Apostle Paul. He was being like, it's it's a humongous, sarcastic letter. Paul does that a lot. <laughs> we don't realize uh, the rhetorical device of sarcasm that Paul uses all the time. Like, oh, you, you like those super apostles, huh? Well, let me tell you how super apostle I am. Hmm? Yeah. So misconception number one, the Bible was not dropped out of the sky. Number two is this. Hebrews 4 talks about the Word of God being alive and active. This does not mean that the Bible is a living document. I, I was explaining that to you, like, because we were on the same wavelength, but when I said that before the podcast, before we, you know, when we were kind of talking about some talking points, you kind of looked at me funny. Like you said, like, it, it's not alive, it doesn't change, but living document, that that's actually a... Um, a, a critical law theory um, that we've seen kind of propagated. It started with, you know, where everything starts with Frankfurt School. But we, we've really seen that in the 20th century, especially with constitutional law. We see that right now. We see that right now with the cases that are before the Supreme Court concerning abortion um, with Texas and Mississippi. We see that um, with... Uh, Supreme Court cases concerning the New York Second Amendment law about the right to bear arms. What does that mean? So living document um, law theory is saying, like, this is what the text of the Constitution says, but even though this is fallacious, the, the, the founders always intended it to be living like it would change with the times. Yeah. Well, there's a, an entire theological thought process about God's Word and God Himself changing with the times, and it's called process theology. And woo boy, that's some really dangerous stuff. So the Bible is not a living document, even though Hebrews 4 says it is alive and active. So I guess we've had a contradiction. We can't trust it, right? I'm sure some people would like to say that. No, it, it is alive because it was it's God's breath upon the page, you could say. God breathed. It is alive, and He does not cease to be. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, as Hebrews also talks about. And yet it is not a living document in the sense of it changes because Malachi 3, what? I, the Lord, do not change. change immutable. Immutable. Then there's another real quick before we get into these principles of good Bible study. Another misconception that I want to clear up. Morgan, oh my gosh, I can't believe I have to even say this because it's so silly. How many times have you been at a Bible study or a round table discussion style Bible study and someone, you know... I'll use women's as an example because they're so bad, except for like Susan Heck and some others. But like, let's say you're doing your little, um, I don't know, your, your terrible Joyce Meyer women's study. Ugh. And you read Ruth chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, completely out of context. 
and somebody in the circle reads it, a lady, and then being the 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 leader of that little group has their little pre-printed lifeway packet and they look around and they say, "Oh yeah, amen." Morgan, what what does this scripture mean to you? I laugh because I've unfortunately been in this circumstance way too many times. That's postmodernism. Yeah. It's infiltrated the church. What does this mean to you? And and when you think back to those moments, and I've, I've had them myself in, in Bible studies when I was a teenager and a young adult, um, you'll get 15 different answers from 15 people. And they can't all be right. Right. They cannot. And so this, what does it mean to you, is not the same question of how does this apply to me. Yeah. There's a huge difference in that. What is the question of what does this mean to you or what does this mean to me means that you have the sole autonomous ability to, to, to dictate truth. Yeah. That's the living document hypothesis there in action. And that's postmodern thought. Well, uh, I think that's the common. It's relativity. Yeah. It, it has to, we have to formulate it that way in order to fit it to where it can change. And the, and the person in the circle that has the most, um, um, how do I even say this? The person in that circle that would, would articulate something in this very... Just like an eloquent way. Eloquent, philosophical yeah. way. What do you automatically think? They're a lot more spiritual yeah. than me. Wow. No, I've seriously, I've been in a study going through... Esther, and one of the questions, like it wasn't even a question spawned by somebody. It was written in a Lifeway book to ask for certain. And it was talking about when Esther and all the other ladies were being held and, you know, had their time with King Xerxes. And it was like, what do you think was going through Esther's mind at this time? How do you think she felt? How would you feel if you were her? And I'm just like, Huh. And so, you know what actually took up our time in that Bible study? That. Not the scripture. It was our feelings, our emotions, and what we thought could be going on. Projecting a 21st century uh, ideology back onto the text. That's what we would call an anachronism. Yeah. That's eisegesis at its height. That's not to say when we come across one of those things that we can't step back at the text and go, hmm, man, if I was before the king, that would be very, yeah, that would be kind of intimidating. But but if that's the main but point if that's where the you're main, staying that, that is, and that's your that takeaway. That is like a tertiary peripheral that you just kind of like, yeah, that would be very. Yeah. You know how much cultural stuff we talked yeah. about, about actually what was going on there in in that moment? Nothing. It was all right. just emotions and right. How we how we would feel if we were her. <laughs> right. And so this, what does it mean to you? Or this is what I think it means. That That's postmodernism, and we need to pump the brakes on that. And these principles that we're about to lay out are proven, good hermeneutical skills. And if you don't know what that word hermeneutics means, it, ju- it means interpretational principles, interpretational skills that can safeguard us from landing way out in left field. And so, uh, as many of you know, I'm a PhD student 
and I am pursuing my degree in hermeneutics. And so this is kind of my life right now outside of Morgan and the kids and preaching and everything else. But we've learned this principle, and I, this is not something that, that is for the ivory tower. I mean, I've, I've given this to you, and it has transformed yeah, how applicable. you have gone to Scripture. And so this is a, not anything that is unique to me. This is not something that I have come up with. This is something that um, has been popularized, th- this term, by um, Dr. Andreas Kostenberger. Um, he, and if you want somebody that knows their stuff about John, that's kind of his his forte. But it's called the hermeneutical triad. Oh, goodness. Hold on. We just went into another <laughs> dimension, right? Do, 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 do. Have just, we defined what hermeneutics yeah, means? Yeah, I just did. You weren't listening, like, obviously. No, specifically. Herman who? Exactly. Who's Herman? <laughs> Herman Munster? No, hermeneutics. It's 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 interpretation. That's just a fancy word of biblical inter- or, or or an interpretational guide, an understanding of interpretation. So the hermeneutical triad or the interpretation triad, triad, triangle, three sides, trinity, what's up? You see that? There we go. Even ended up doing some math there. These principles make up like a hermeneutical triad. And so imagine you have a piece of paper and you're getting ready to do some art. The paper itself is the first principle. And then the following three principles are the the three sides of the triangle that create the work of art. And what you do with it is your application. And so the first is this, the, the, the paper, the canvas itself is context, right? Context, context, context. Context is king or key to proper hermeneutical endeavors, the proper interpretation. So what do we mean by context? So let's, let's use Jeremiah 29, 11, for example, yeah. because it's very popular. People have it, um, as their mantra, because I see it a lot in high school youth groups right before they go off to college of somebody saying, the Lord, you know, you got to know the, the plans the Lord has for you, and this is what they are. And it's like, okay, is God sovereign over the affairs of, of even his young people? Absolutely. But what is this actually talking about? Like, could we derive a more faithful principle of God being sovereign and Him going to guide your steps, even at the college or the trade that you go into, yeah, like maybe from the Proverbs for sure, like the the yeah. plan, like Proverbs sixteen, the the m- m- mind of man plans his steps or the heart of man plans his steps, but the, the it's every way is from the Lord, right? That's a lot better than Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. Why? Because let's look at the context. Context, context of the verse. All right, there's a verse that precedes Jeremiah 29, 11 and a, and a verse that, that comes after it. Can we gain any context from what's going on there? What, what is actually being said? Not what do we think it says and not, do, not what do we want it to say. Again, the Bible was not dropped out of the sky and it's not this book that we go to that, that is mystical that we have to try to like really strain to figure out what's going on. Uh, an example I used in a 
um, a round table in, in my PhD studies was imagine a, a guy wakes up and he walks out front and his, his robe and his bunny slippers and he picks up the paper and he opens it up and he sees that there has been an alien invasion. You know, honestly, this sounds a whole lot more real than it did whenever I was saying it a, a while ago because I feel like we have been invaded by aliens with all these goofy pronoun things. All right, he, he reads it and he says, he, he opens it and it says, alien invasion. And he scans the page and something about they're 10 foot tall, green, and they want to eat you. And so what's he do? He freaks out. He throws on all of his, you know, domestic terrorist, uh, <laughs> his gear that he's bought from Rule King, right? Like his yeah. bulletproof vest and all this stuff. He's got his AR. He's got all his bug out bag. He jumps in the pickup truck. He like just hightails it out of the suburbs there. Ends up at Costco or or a bulk place, and he's wondering why no one else is freaking out, and he's screaming like, you know, the aliens, blah, you know, they're just absolutely nuts. And he buys all the beans that he can buy and all the toilet paper, right? He gets back to his house. He's frantically doing all these things, and he's yelling at his neighbors, "We gotta hurry! I got enough. We can all. I've got a. I've got a. I, I dumped my four hundred one k a while ago. I've got a bug out bunker." You know, a mile away. Come on, we got to hurry. Everybody get in the back. And the sheriff shows up and is like, whoa, 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 what's going on? Hey, like, calm down. What are you talking about? Are you off your meds? No, there's alien invasion. Just read it in the paper. No, there's not. Yes, there is. Look. And what we see is, is that the man went outside, opened up the paper, flipped it open, and was reading the synopsis for a new movie that was playing at the local theater. We don't treat any other literature the way that we do the Bible, do we? No. I mean, so we read uh, C.S. Lewis, the Narnia Chronicles with with Nova sometimes, and other books. Do we yeah, ever? Yeah. So just let's flip just take the, so yeah. Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. There's twenty eight chapters that come before there. Are we going to open up a book? I would even let's say a book that we've never read before. Because I would say probably in its entirety, a lot of the Old Testament books aren't as popularly read as New Testament. Right. So let's pick up a book off the shelf, jump to chapter 16, sentence 5, and just take it for what it is. Right. If we do not treat any other literature like this, even what I would call media literature. We don't treat even social media like that. Yeah. Because someone would start screaming, you're taking me out of context. Exactly. That's what we've seen with all these deep fakes and all these these editorialized pieces of of even a video being cropped to make it say what we want it to say to prove a point. We don't treat anything else like that. Why do we treat the Bible like that? So what's your immediate context of the verse? What's the context of the paragraph? Twenty nine eleven is right in the middle of a pretty big paragraph, yeah. isn't it? What's going on in the paragraph? All right. So you see, we start here, really zoomed in, and then we start zooming out. So what's in the context of the verse? What's the context of the paragraph? What's the context of what we call the pericope? So 
when you're reading your Bible, you need to understand that this is going to shock you, Morgan. I can already see your disdain. Do you know that chapters and verses weren't added until like the middle the Middle Ages? Oh my goodness, what? I actually didn't know that. Sorry. Because you've told me before. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Whoa. So we could have... No, but I will say probably most... Like, that's not a common thing. I think that's stated very often. Right. And that's why you need to do your Bible code of taking the number seven... Running, yeah. yeah, and start... I wasn't even there from the beginning. And adding all these things together to see if you can come up with a secret message like Nostradamus did. Yeah, like these letters that Paul wrote to these churches. He he put these numbers in there. He's like, just read this part first. Yeah, <laughs> just no. read these couple verses. No, so it was the, a letter. A pericope is a, is a bigger chunk. So when you're when you're reading, for example, um, a couple weeks ago, uh, preaching through Acts at Oakwood, preached through two chapters. Acts 25 and Acts 26 together. You know, most people would read Acts 25 and then stop and say, okay, there you go. Yeah. But it all goes together. So we would call that the pericope, uh, or some may pronounce it pericope. It's, I've been taught to, to pronounce it pericope. It's the context of, of how it all goes together. So Acts 25 and 26 go together, and 27. I was going to say, you've even done, like, you've stopped in the middle of a chapter, yeah. like, if that's where it ends. Stuff, stuff changes. When, when you're reading through, for example, when you're reading through uh, the book of John, when you're reading through the gospel of John, there's a, there's a shift after the last um, miracle, the last sign of Jesus. So we kind of call it the book of signs. There's a shift in the middle of the book of John. So you start looking at these these larger chunks, how they fit together. Then you look at the chapter. Maybe it's a chapter that fits together. Maybe it's multiple, like I just stated, that, that all fit together. Then you look at the book itself. Where does it come at in the book? 29 is at the tail end of Jeremiah. Yeah. It's different if you say Jeremiah 2.29 or 2.11. Okay, yeah, we're, not, we're pretty Not as much has come before front. then. But you're in the middle. And then we need to look at not only that book uh, in the context of where that verse fits in the book, but that book and the entire canon. So Jeremiah is what? An exilic prophet, right? This is not in the Pentateuch. Jeremiah is not close to Adam, right? Chronologically, um, Jeremiah is not close to David. He's actually at, at, at quite the tail end of, of what we'd call the theocratic state of Israel. He's at the very tail end. So where does that book fit in chronologically or even in the entire canon of Scripture? What are we looking at there? Context is key. So there's your there's your canvas. We don't want to drag this on too much, so we'll go on to your, your, your triad here. And here's your triad. Number one, do you like BLTs, Morgan? Bacon, less tomato? No. Why? I don't like tomatoes. Sometimes it's really weird, but no, I don't. I have not gotten a. Um, my palate is not open to the tomatoes and sandwich be, form yet. Let it be known that my wife does not like bacon, lettuce, tomato sandwiches. I do if they're fried green tomatoes, though. Okay, well that that does count, but like a, just a regular old BLT. If you don't like that, then I mean, how does Merrick Garland not think that you're a domestic terrorist? He does. You know why? Why? Because you're a parent. And you're a woman, and you have no melanin. Well, there we go. You domestic terrorist. 
let's add BLT to the list. Let's continue. All right, HLT, that's your triad. History, literature, theology. It's not a BLT, it's HLT. It's a ham lettuce tomato sandwich. There's still tomatoes, though. I know. You're not helping me. Historical implications. What is the historical uh the, the history around this passage. I'm not talking about the history of interpretation. I'm talking about actual history. Jeremiah. We're in Jeremiah 29, 11. What's, what's the, his, the historical implications of what's going on? Well, Jeremiah is prophesying that, that God's people are about to be judged with exile. And yet, what? He knows the plans that he has for them that this, this exile is chastisement upon them. But they're not going to going to be utterly destroyed because he has made a covenant with their fathers. All right, so they're getting ready to be exiled. Well, who's getting ready to exile them? Well, then you start looking at Assyria and Babylon. You start looking at kings like Nebuchadnezzar. You start looking at these empires, and you start to see actual history. How does that affect the interpretation of that passage? Well. The history itself of this verse right here actually affects the interpretation, the hermeneutic, quite substantially. God's not saying, I just want to bless you. You're you're a pitcher on my refrigerator, Joel Osteen. <laughs> He's saying, like, I'm about to judge you with exile. You're going to be kicked out of the land. And that was one of the covenant curses all the way back. Yeah. And Deuteronomy and subsequently Exodus and the, the Mosaic legislation and the Pentateuchal narrative. This was a huge one for me when yeah. I started using this. It really does change so much. But it, it illuminates the scriptures more because you see... Illuminates. You sound like you said it eliminates. No, illuminates. Sorry. It's my bad. No, it really does, though. Because when you... Take other things into consideration when reading scripture besides your modern day self. You can actually see the here and now, but obviously not here and now, but the here and now of when this was actually written. Right. So we need to understand that, again, the Bible was was inspired in real space-time history. Yeah. There's cultures. There's a bridge between here and then that we have to scale, that we have to cross. And guess what? There's some aspects of historical context and historical implications that that are going to be very difficult for us to understand. Some that we may not agree with, and some that we just are flat out not going to be able to recover simply because we don't know some things about those various historical uh, issues. Whether that be an empire, whether that be certainly the ancient Near East, we're gaining a ton of information, a, a plethora of information and research about the ancient Near East, but we, we don't know exactly, or even some of the languages that we're finding, right, in these archaeological digs, but history does matter. So let's give an example of culture, right? Uh, the, the, the one that comes to mind perfectly, just right off the top of my head, is the seven churches of Revelation. Yeah. You know, what Christ says to those seven churches um, is not random, right? What he says to those churches, whether it be Ephesus, whether it be 
Laodicea, whether it be Philadelphia, whatever, some of those, some of those markers that he says, like come, come, uh, like Laodicea, you're lukewarm, so I vomit you out of my mouth. Yeah, is he he is is Jesus making a spiritual um, proclamation there about them? Yes, but if you actually go and do some historical research, yeah, there's so much more. The Laodicea was was inland quite a ways, and they had to they had to pipe their water in. They had to import their water in, so it's not like us where we can turn the faucet on and there it is, and we can have hot and cold. Mm-hmm. They had to pipe their water in a substantial way through aqueducts, and by the time it got to Laodicea, it was neither nice and crisp cold, and it was it wasn't hot like from a hot spring either. It was just kind of like lukewarm. And what what we mean yeah. by that is, like, have you ever got in the car on a not a hot day, but you've been doing something, and the car is warmed up a little bit warmer than it is outside, and you see a bottle of water, and you're like, man, and you go to take a swig of it, and you just go. Oh, yes. It doesn't quench your thirst. It may hydrate you. Yeah. But it's, it's good for nothing. Like, ooh, that's what, that's what Jesus is saying. But guess what? He's using something about the actual culture of that town to make a statement about them spiritually. Is he not? Yeah, he is. That's why it, that's why. But how many times have you heard a sermon preached upon that when none of that's even brought to the forefront, it's just, oh, well, he's going to spit you out if you're lukewarm. He either wants you to be really on fire for him or really cold and, like, reject him. I'm like, oh, okay. I wonder, why do you need to be really cold? Yeah, like, he, he wants you to do that. A, be, a better, a better <laughs> way of If you're in between, it, though, that's when he's done. A better way of, of actually examining that is, is this. How about this? Be useful. Yeah, have a purpose. <laughs> be useful for the Lord. Yeah. Not spiritually cold. Because then it's like everybody's got to be boiling hot. Well, I don't want to drink boiling hot water. Yeah. And I'm, I'm going to burn my taste buds and I'm going to be able to taste the awesome Asian food that we're about to have in just yes. a little bit. All right. Look at the culture. Also, I, I want to drop in here. Uh, I mentioned it, your, your ancient Near Eastern parallels, right? Look at the account of um, the, the other flood accounts. That actually does quite good in illuminating why the scriptures are the word of God. You see these perversions like the Epic of Gilgamesh and um, you know various parallels, but these parallels show sometimes that what is written about in the scriptures in real space-time history is a polemic. And if you don't know what that means, it's actually like a, it's a pushback against what the broader culture is talking about. So a polemic would, would be this. When we read the account of the 10 plagues upon Egypt. That's yeah, are a po- they at random? They're, are they random? Like, why are there flies? <laughs> right? No, this yeah. is a polemic. It's a pushback against Egypt. It's Yahweh turning various Egyptian gods on Egypt so that they will see that there is no God but Yahweh. It's a polemic. We say polemic psalms. We see that there's even some scholarship that 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 would suggest that um, the creation account is a polemic against this polytheistic um, world that thinks that at the beginning of time, um, Marduk had to, you know, battle Tiamat and uh, battle this the deep. And that's how the sun, moon, and stars came to be because he chopped this sea 
creature thing up and its blood became the stars and moon and like these, what we would call mytho history of Marduk and, you know, whatever it would be, Baal, whatever culture. Genesis 1 just is very blatantly obvious, like God said, boom, 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 here it is. It's seen in some ways as a polemic. If you are interested about that, go read Against the Gods by John Currid, very good resource. Second part of the triad are literary implications. Literary implications. So look at specific words. You can even ask yourself, why did God inspire this word to be used and not this one? That's a good question. Yeah. It's a good question. Well, and I think one that's come up with us a lot lately is like the actual original languages too. Because it 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 can change. Not not change, but it it illuminates the true meaning so often. And so I find myself sometimes in the mornings, because Zach always has his program pulled up on his computer, I'll be like, hey, can you go to this and tell me if this word is the same word as this in this other verse and if there's a similarity between the two. And I think that's one that a lot of people don't see as necessary because we look at, yes, praise God that we have men who have worked so hard to give us the translations that we have, the sound ones that we have today. But in even a translation that is so good and well thought out, you can still glean from the original languages in certain words. Right. There there are no 100% um, renders from language to language. There are words in certainly Hebrew uh, and also Greek that we in English simply do not have an equivalent to. And so that is why you're exactly right. Not only looking at specific words, but looking at the original languages. All right. You do not have to be a Greek or Hebrew scholar. You, by God's sovereign providence, and I praise him for it, we have programs like Logos. I was going to say, I don't know any of these words. I just bring them up and it tells me what they right, mean. Logos is a huge tool for us. And if you can afford afford it or even get some of the free versions and start compiling stuff, get it because it's wonderful. Um, if you are more of a hard copy person, which I'm both, get a good interlinear that, that breaks down um, the Greek along with the English that shows you each of those words and how they're rendered. And though a good interlinear will have a transliteration of, um, you know, it'll have the English word there, the English part. It'll have the, a line in English, the line in Greek, and then a, a transliteration. Look at the original languages. They are extremely important. Because an issue that we we have a lot is we try to impose our modern day definition upon a word when that's not at all what it was there intended to say the one that we've been having a lot with lately is fulfillment yeah like so i'm sure we'll get to this at some point in the episode but christ being the fulfillment of the law and prophets we, we have multiple greek words that are used but what like so we try to say well then it's done yeah it's pler- over with pleru the greek word there doesn't mean that we can look at the word telos we can look at all these things but if we don't go to the original language um, so many times we come away um, I'm not going to say every single time but 
because I don't want someone that that is listening to say, well, like I've never done that, so I guess I don't know the Bible. Absolutely not. I know men and women that know their Bible back and forth and have sound theology and have wonderful um, Christian worldviews that don't have any idea about that. But what what we're suggesting in this and what I'm suggesting primarily is don't be scared by the original yeah. languages. It actually makes the Word of God, that Bible, that ESB, that NESB, that you know, whatever you're holding, that faithful translation, if you're reading the message, stop. Like the Please. like like the Michael Jordan thing. Stop it. Get an ESV, get an NASB, even a CSB is fine. I, just stop. Don't do that. Um the original language makes the word of God. It, it it really if you sit and think like, wow, I'm looking at this this Koine Greek word here. This is this is the the language that God chose to use to write the New Testament. It makes you it you can't really fathom it. Yeah. That's why I'm having a hard time trying to find a word to express it. I would just say like don't see it as unimportant. Don't think that you have to learn like two whole languages in order to know the Bible. Like Zach said, like by God's providence, we do have technology today that is allows us to just go to something that has rendered it for us. But don't, in our arrogance, think that we know it all. Absolutely. Um, because I I once was like, why would anybody need all that theology stuff and need to know original languages? And I've even recently had a conversation with someone who, when I mentioned they were just going down a little bit of a wonky path, and I just said, hey... You know, it sometimes it really helps if you look at the original languages of this and it shows you like, hey, the meaning that you're trying to impose on this word is not accurate. And they were very just defensive mm-hmm. of like, well, I have a translation just like you have a translation and all this stuff. And I'm like, yeah, we do. We absolutely but, but do. We can do more with it. But we so oftentimes impose even on those faithful translations like an NASB or LSB or ESV. The word, so we'll keep fulfillment. We we have a connotation of fulfillment that that means done. We we're done. We can throw it to the side now. Yeah, that's a modern under, understanding of what that word means. And that that word that is rendered fulfill or fulfillment that's that's right. That's actually that's actually correct. It's it's our incorrect connotation mm-hmm. of that. We'll we'll finish the literary implications up real quick. Look at the genre of the scripture, right? If you're looking at something in the Psalms and it says God is a fortress, he's not really a castle, <laughs> right? Understand your genre. Yeah. Apocalyptic genre like Daniel, uh, portions of Daniel, uh, Ezekiel, Revelation, um, even some of the apocalyptic language that Jesus himself uses at the Olivet Discourse, that's different than the narratives of Acts whenever Luke is reporting that they got shipwrecked on Malta. Yeah, that's actually what Malta happened. Malta's a real place. <laughs> and it actually happened. And it's not some sort of, it's not a symbol. Yeah. It's a real place. But open up past the first <laughs> chapter or so of Revelation and read some of that and tell me if you think there's really this giant beast and all this stuff occurring. So you really mean that there's a woman that's going to stand exactly. on the moon in outer space? I don't Excuse mean me. that. Right. But. So look at the the genre of what you're looking at 
is absolutely important as well. And then there's also the literary emphases that are in there. So you've heard me teach Oakwood about inclusios. Yeah. So if a chunk of scripture that you're reading starts with a thought, lays out various things, and then ends with a thought that's the exact same as a couple verses before, or maybe is a very similar thing. So like, the sky is blue, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and the white clouds in the blue sky. That's actually a literary emphasis that's meant to highlight everything in the middle of, of, of what's going on. That's called an inclusio. Think about bookends, right? That's what I've taught Oakwood. Yeah. It's bookends. Look at repetition. If Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, or amen, amen, truly, truly. There's you look a reason at why. If Paul in Ephesians keeps talking about uh, using the word, uh, you know, grace, grace, grace. You know, he's yeah. emphasizing a point. If or mo- in him, yeah, in him, in, in him, Christ. in him. Uh, you know, abide, abide, abide. Like John, First John uses yeah. the word abide, you uh, know, m- m- a lot. Abide, 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 abide. Okay, we'll probably need to pick up what they're putting down. Right? Mm-hmm. They're doing that on purpose. Parallelisms in the Psalms, various parallelisms. Like if you, uh, if a Psalm says. Um, I'll just make something up. To those who love the Lord, their face shines like the sun in the darkness, but to the wicked, they are like, they're dark as a cave. All right? There's a parallelism there in the sense of it's contrasting. Sometimes a parallel is like a heightened expression of those that love the Lord shine like the noonday st- sun, yes, they shine like a thousand suns. It's it's emphasizing something yeah. really big. All right, so knowing, like, listen, knowing some literary elements, it helps. Does it not? Yeah, it does. Last part of the triad, and then we'll let y'all go, because I know we're, we could talk about it's this a for long a long one. time. Yeah, because yeah. this is kind of life right now. The last part is theological implications. All right, what the immediate context what are we talking about? If you're in the Old Testament, what are some theological implications of reading Psalm 22? Let's go back to that. Psalm 22 with David. He's in anguish about something, isn't he? He's yeah. saying that his that everyone around him is like there's just dogs that surround him, which was like a a innuent, like a euphemism for Gentile, like bad enemies. He's saying that all of his bones are out of joint. He's just in this immense distress. Okay. And he's asking God, like, where are you? It's a lament psalm. But yet it ends with the entire world knowing about God, that his name is known among the nations, that, that the nations will, not, not Israel, nations, plural, all, will worship God. So it ends in great praise, but there's portions that, that are so lamentable, they're like, oh, man, he's going through something bad. And so... Is there an immediate theological implication from that that we can draw from? Absolutely. That even in our distress, God is sovereign and he will be praised, even if we don't understand the situation. Yeah, for sure. So there's immediate context theologically, but then we have to have, and this will be an episode in and of itself, a Luke 24 lens for all of Scripture. Jesus, two times in one chapter, to the disciples on the road to Emmaus and in the upper room in Luke 24 said this, I, and this is a paraphrase, I am the fulfillment 
or the the fuller revelation, the fuller understanding of the law, that would be the first five books, the prophets, and the writings. Guess what that is, Morgan? Do you want to take an educated guess to what that means? The whole Old Testament. The entire Old Testament. <laughs> I didn't mean to do the Biden, the creepy Biden whisper, sorry. It's okay. The entire Old Testament. And so we look, not imposing something on the text, like trying to make some weird application, but we look to Psalm 22 and we go, oh, there's there's actually an intertextual cross-reference right there. Like Jesus quotes that on the cross. Oh, so we see that that there's this greater fulfillment in Christ and that Luke 24 lens of, of um, how it points to Christ or points back in later uh, New Testament writings, it, it has to center on some aspect of the person or work of Jesus Christ. It, it's not just like, well, how does it apply to the cross? No, it, is it his perfect life? Is it how he's a good high priest? Is it is it about how he is the final judge? Is it about how he was uh, he is omnipotent? These are all aspects of his person and work. It's not just this like very static. Well, if it if it don't have anything to do with the cross, then no. Yeah. There's a lot more. Tom Buck gave a fire breakout session at G3 this past year about this very topic, and I, by God's grace, I have the video. I watch it a lot. Um. There's theological implications. What is this teaching? So in the immediate context and then the broader context of the scripture where you're at, what is this passage or what is this teaching? Is it teaching about the sovereignty of God? Is it teaching about um, righteousness? Is it teaching about um, fill in the blank, whatever? You have to be aware of what's actually being taught. So Jeremiah 29, 11, we'll close. Coming back to that, what's being taught there? It's not that God's going to give you your lottery dream house, yeah. right? It's God saying, um, I'm I'm bringing the curse upon you like I said I would, but you need to understand that I'm not going to utterly destroy you. Yeah. I have He'll plans for faithful. you. I have plans for you. And guess what? The plans were to bring them back out of exile and to rebuild uh oh, but that wasn't just the end goal though, right? Because out of Israel came who? Christ the Messiah yeah, and his perfect work and his perfect life and his resurrection and all those things. So we start to see this. And so that's why as we close this episode, I know it's a little longer. Um, we so believe that having a good understanding of what we would call it, it, honestly, it's even inductive Bible study, jumping into the text, using this hermeneutical triad, understanding context, both his, historically, literarily, theologically, and then drawing an application of that, that, is, that is sound. Not an application of Jeremiah 29, 11, when you take all of that into consideration, is not, well, I better go get a lottery ticket. Yeah. No, it's even if things around me are dilapidating, like right now. Yeah. He promises good to his people, not good that we think, right? Like Bentleys and big houses and a big, you know, huge Roth IRA that when we're 65, we get $5 million a month and we have really beautiful teeth like Joel Osteen. No, it's, it's good based upon his standard and that he will be glorified and he will 
bring us through, even if it doesn't look like how we think it should. So remain faithful because he's faithful, even when it looks like the world's not faithful and everybody around you isn't. There's great theological implications to bring out. And so as we close, I'd, I'd love to get you just your, your final thoughts on the importance of in-depth Bible study because you're a mom of two, you're a homemaker, you're busy. This isn't just, is, I mean, is this just for the ivory tower? Is this just for people getting degrees and getting MDivs and going and just for pastors and all those things? Or is this for everyone? This is absolutely for everyone. And I think that's something that we've, we've put such a negative connotation in modern evangelicalism on the word theologian or just theology in general. We think that it's this high lofty um, thought process that is not needed. But I think it was R.C. Sproul that said it's it's not if you're a theologian, it's what kind of theologian you are. Yeah, he had a book that's, that called Everyone's a Theologian. Yeah. And so it, it's not whether you study theology, it's are you studying it soundly and rightly. Um, I mean, theology simply means the study of God. If you, if you say you believe in God, then you are a theologian. If you profess Christ, then open up your Bible that's what you are now. And so for me as a mom, once I saw the importance of all this and thankfully had my husband to help guide me along, it really changed just our day-to-day lives of me and the kids in the home. And so it, I personally need to start my morning in the Word uh, before my kids wake up. And so being able to not just open it to a random Brand a page and pick out a scripture of, you know, a Jeremiah 29, 11, and then my whole day gets crazy and chaotic. And then I'm just like, oh, well, God, you're not prospering me. It's not that. It's I, I now go into my day and into teaching my children being rooted and grounded in the scriptures and being able to teach that to them as well. And it's it's even made me see more of an importance of how I teach our oldest the Bible. So I She's five, but she is very much capable of opening up and listening to an actual translation, not a storybook Bible. And so I do a storybook Bible with her and her little brother, who's two. But for her, we go through these books of the Bible, like we talked about with Josh on the last episode, and we're breaking it down. We're looking at these. We're we're not instantly going, I'm not saying, hey, Nova, what is this? What do you think this is about? Or what does this mean to you? It's, hey, this is what's going on. So for example, like Ephesians, she's she's memorized almost all of chapter two. And okay, let's look at what Paul's doing. And so it's it's helped discipleship in the mm-hmm. home. It, it's there's a direct correlation between the two, and you're going to see that as a mom or as a dad when it comes to discipling your kids what your standing is in your personal bible study is going to trickle down whether it's positive or negative into your children's lives and that goes for husband and wife as well that yeah iron sharpening iron with one another and listen i know that there'll be someone out there that says well you didn't talk about the grammatical historical method and you didn't talk about the rule of faith of letting scripture interpret scripture yes listen the, the, the murkier parts of Scripture, you let the clearer parts of Scripture um, interpret. You know, we, we 
I hope everybody understands that, and we can make that entire episode. But what we're trying to do is just give this basic overview of, of how to have how to have better Bible study. Not yeah. not please do not hear us saying if you don't study the Bible like this, you don't do it right. No, no, no. This is just a little little um, goad prod, right? We're mm-hmm. using the the plow and ox um, <laughs> metaphors and all those. Um, this is a little prod to say, hey, this is this is this is a way to have better Bible study. And Morgan, I know that you will yes and amen this. I would rather someone slow down and only be able to tackle 10 verses a day, but mine those 10 verses so much that they walk away going, wow, I not only understand the the historical context and all these things better, but my heart is kindled for the Word of God even more rather than someone that's trying to speed read through the Bible three times in a year. Yeah, absolutely. Like what are you what are you gaining if your if your purpose is just to say I read the Bible? Um if it's not to take away and see, you know, Christ at the center of it all and to be able to glean from it more than just like, oh, let me flip through this. I got my Bible reading done for the day. Check. And that's easy to do. Like I totally get it, especially if you do have kids like mornings or nights or whenever you try to read it, it can get chaotic, but make it meaningful, make it have purpose. If, if you know that you do not have a ton of time and you need to, like Zach said, go through it slower, but make those moments count. Absolutely. Well, you know, I think this is a great place to end right here. So as we bring this episode to a close, we are just so thankful that you have yoked together with us for looking at how to have a better Bible study after looking at discipleship in the home. Please uh, give us some feedback. Give this episode, this podcast, a five-star rating. Share it, all that stuff. Morgan, where can they connect with us on social media? We are on Instagram. Our handle is at the equal yoke. Go check us out on there. Check us out on Facebook. It is also the same. Or just type in your search bar, The Equal Yoke Podcast. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. And like Zach said, uh, if you do listen to this and you've listened to the other ones, if you could just give us a review, that helps us out. That's right. Well, until the next time uh, that we come together to plow ahead with one another, we pray that you have even better Bible study from here on out. And until next time, thanks and God bless.